You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to our global audience today. Um, There are more than 250 of you joining the call from nearly 40 countries, and it's a great pleasure to be uh, hosting this webinar on your behalf. Uh, My name is Clive Brialt. I'm the chair of Toronto Centre's Banking Advisory Board, and previously I was a regulator in the UK. So welcome everyone to this fourth Uh, webinar of the Toronto Centre series on pandemics and financial stability, the supervisory challenge. Our special guest today is Martin Maloney, the Director General of the Jersey Financial Services Commission. He moved to Jersey in February 2019 from the Central Bank of Ireland and his full biography is available on the invitation for this webinar. It will certainly be fascinating to hear his perspective on how supervisors are responding to the impact of the COVID-19 outbreak on the real economy and on the financial sector. But before we begin, I would just like to thank the sponsors and funders of the Toronto Centre, Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, the International Monetary Fund, Jersey Overseas Aid and Comic Relief, without whom the Toronto Centre could not achieve its global mission. One final word of introduction. I know that many of you will have questions for Martin. Uh, We will have time to ask Martin some of these in the second half of the webinar. So do please type your questions in as we go along in the Q&A tab, which you should find below your video screen or indeed above it if you're watching on an iPad. Uh, And once we've collected in those questions, uh, we will endeavour to answer as many of them as our time allows. Martin, to uh, set the scene more generally, uh, can you tell us what's happening uh, to the local economy and to the financial sector in Jersey as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak? Uh, And in particular, which financial sector risks have increased as a result. Yeah, gladly, um, Clive, and, and, and it's good to talk to you. And, uh, and I have to say my, my congratulations to the Toronto Centre for, uh, for running this series, which is great for networking regulators around the world at this time when people really do need to talk to each other about, uh, about what's going on. Um, in, in Jersey, our, our local economy is, is uh, characterised by being a financial services centre. And that means it's a small, very open economy, but with two critical dependencies, one on global financial markets and the other on the UK economy to which we are uh, historically connected. Our government's uh, fiscal advisory panel did an assessment a couple of weeks ago of the impact on the local economy of this crisis and estimate that that of about 6% of GDP. Now, when you compare that to others at that time, 
some of the estimates were ranging between five and 10%. And as you will know, some of the estimates since have gone up over 20% for different countries. And, and indeed in, in, in one or two countries, some of the uh, expert estimates have touched 30%. But I suspect our impact to be somewhat on the lower side of, of, of that range. Um, our government are taking measures which are similar to those being taken in other countries to uh, improve liquidity and support up to half our, our workforce in order to limit the demand and labour supply impacts of this, of this crisis. As a, as a regulator, our first focus was on the way this was hitting the global financial markets themselves, because most of our firms are linked to those markets and as a securities regulator, what you're really interested in is how orderly markets are working, so the prices are moving up, moving down, some people are making money, some people are losing money, and all that's happening in an orderly way. You actually don't want to stop it. But we do know from prior experience that uh, as the tide goes out, I guess weaknesses get revealed, and you've got to be able to see those coming and to engage very early with the relevant, with relevant firms. And I think this is particularly the case when some unexpected things happen, such as we've seen during this crisis. Particularly, we've seen some sell-offs of assets that people would have deemed were quite safe assets. And we've also seen things like a uh, breakdown in the, in, the, in the oil cartel, for example. And these would be unexpected events. And it's also happening against a background of concerns that regulators have had, and we've been involved in these conversations for some years, about the pricing of corporate credit in particular, about some of the structures that are emerging like CLOs with behavior patterns like tranching and warehousing that regulators have seen in the past and that have worried us in the past. So some of the questions that were in our minds were, how is this impacting on, on, on those? And, uh, and what, do, what, do we, uh, what do we need to focus on? Um, so what we actually saw in markets uh, back in early and mid-March as we looked at this was we saw doubts about the valuation of illiquid assets. We saw some doubts about automated trading and how that's working and those have become perennial problems in each, in each time we get significant volatility now. And, uh, and we saw concerns about how liquidity was working. We definitely saw those uh, becoming quite substantial. Uh, in the JFSC, in response to that, we started to focus our scrutiny on uh, some particular entities, some banks with large lending exposures, some funds with less liquid assets. And um, we were concerned, obviously, about how these market movements were impacting on them. I think market liquidity definitely did reach a point in March where some of the key indicators of stress, particularly uh, one I'm thinking of, exchange-traded funds trading away from net asset value, but there were some others as well, which were indicating rising stress, and that it wasn't all entirely orderly. Um, but the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, they've intervened, and since then, our view is markets are trading well. In fact, we've seen some capital raising, uh, which in, in a way is quite extraordinary, but we've seen quite a bit of that in, in, in the markets. We have seen fund suspensions. We've seen some of them in some of our Jersey funds uh, because of valuation doubts mainly. And I would distinguish between suspensions caused by valuation doubts and other reasons for suspensions. And I'm personally strongly of the view that that's actually a reflection of an orderly market, not a reflection of a, of a disorderly market. So that was the first phase of our supervisory uh, work. And I, and I think it went quite well. The second phase uh, involved us thinking about uh, a V-shaped recession, which was the most reasonable, I think, early scenario as to what was going on here. 
And that means we were concerned about short-term impacts on consumers and therefore on credit and on banks. And that turned our focus to the impairment of debts in the banking sector. We did a quick stress test uh, early in March in the banking sector, and that showed us maybe unsurprisingly, but that but the, the banks were well placed to deal with what I might call the first round effects of uh, a sudden movement in interest and exchange rates. So that did not surprise us because of all the work that had been done uh, on bank liquidity in recent years and we had fully participated in, in that. So where we are now is we're trying to think um, about the range of impacts on the banking sector of the likely second round effects of this crisis, particularly effects on the real economy. And I think we've all got to be frank, that's very difficult to assess. There are lots of people with opinions uh, on that, but it is difficult to be uh, uh, authoritative, particularly given that the exit strategy from the public health measures, both on a global level and on a regional level, remains to be determined. And there are both there are two aspects of that. It's the timing of those, that, those public health exit strategy measures and the content of them, exactly how you do it, whether you do it sector by sector or particular tranches of the workforce and, and, and so on. It does seem likely now that uh, this will not be a, a V-shaped recession, but will be somewhat worse. Will it be a U-shaped recession? Or will the recovery be more gradual? There's a lot of people who think it will, and maybe you could say that's likely, but I think we can't be absolutely certain about that yet. How the global economy synchronizes as it starts up again, I think that's, that's the fact that uh, one thing that is really important. And the second is to try to figure out how much of the demand that hasn't been realized in the recent period has been suppressed and how much is actually gone and just won't be there again as the economy starts up again. And I think at the heart of the question we're facing is trying to work out uh, uh, what our regulated uh, firms are facing is the degree to which harm is likely to occur in what I like to think of as a whole network of current debts between all the firms and the traders in the economy. So if payments of receivables are delayed, then that's one thing, they might be impaired, that's still okay. But if a substantial amount of debtors in the real economy just go out of business, then a significant portion of those receivables and the working capital funding that banks provide to support that, that process um, could have to be written off. And this is a very different scenario and governments I know are doing their best to try to cushion that effect, uh, but there are still question marks there. So as a regulator, as the public health exit scenarios in different jurisdictions becomes clear, we need to understand the economic mechanics of how that's going to work, how that's going to impact in the economy. And we need to start working on the character and testing of both the likely scenario and the downside scenario for the particular institutions that we're regulating. And that's where we are now, with a particular focus on the branches and the subsidiaries of the large global groups uh, with exposure in many countries that are characteristic of our jurisdiction. Okay, thanks a lot for that, Martin. So a comprehensive view there of what's happening out there in the economy and to the financial sector. And we'll come back to the supervisory response to that in just a moment. But can we just take a look now inside the Jersey Financial Services Commission? Uh, how have your staff been affected? Have you activated your business continuity plan? Have you activated any crisis management arrangements? Uh, how have you replaced on-site supervisory activities yes i 
I expect our experience here is quite similar to that of, of many regulators. If I think back, uh, and it seems like a long time ago, uh, to January and February, uh, where we were monitoring the build-up of this and with a particular focus on our travel policy, um, then we really started to ratchet up our, our monitoring and consideration of this in, I think it was the last week of February. Uh, at that point, I set up a mid-level management committee working for me to look at this, and we reviewed our business continuity plans. And actually, we realized at that point that we, we weren't in the right place, and we had work to do. So we immediately moved then to place this under the agenda of our executive board members, and we made it a key priority of our chief operations officer. We prepared a partial work from home, test involving about a third of our staff and we did that at the end of the first week of March. We learned a lot from that and we picked up a lot of glitches and uh, we then did a 90% staff out test on, on the 18th of March and that worked so well that we were actually able to get that 90% of our staff out of the office indefinitely from the 20th of March. And uh, we then 24th of March made the call and moved to 100% uh, out of office. Uh, our timing was was really uh, fortuitous in a way because uh, the Jersey government then uh, announced their stay-at-home uh, plan on the 29th of March and we were already in place and ready to help them uh, uh, with that. I should say Jersey is experiencing this virus at a somewhat slower rate than, than our main neighbours, the UK uh, and France. Our local figures currently are with a population of just over 100,000. We have uh, three deaths and some uh, 170 confirmed cases, and that three deaths figure has remained static for a number of days. So those stay-at-home measures seem to have had a very strong uh, effect. I think our government actually benefited from having done a pandemic planning exercise uh, quite recently. And um, the government is now working on a recovery plan to help the economy after we get out of this. Look, turning back to the JFSC, I think um, it's worth asking maybe what didn't work so well? And one thing that didn't work so well that others might also uh, uh, mirror is um, we had an external dependency for ensuring the security of our home working arrangements. We had a clear standard that we had decided we are not going to compromise under any circumstances, which was the standard of security of our uh, data and our information from the firms that we regulate. And that meant we had a clear preference, a clear choice. If it was going to be a choice between the security of data or the productivity of our staff, we preferred to take the hit to productivity rather than to uh, put any of that data uh, at risk. And that sort of slowed us down into getting back up to full productivity because our external suppliers, understandably, were suffering from uh, an excess of demand all over the place because lots of people both here and elsewhere were trying to use them to, to, to do the same thing that we were doing. So while we were able to get 90% of the staff fully functional from home from the 24th of March, we've only just got to the full 100% fully functional as of the 3rd of, of April. We're very pleased with that, obviously. Uh, it's a very successful program having regard to everything. And I guess the other problem, it's not so much a hard uh, um, uh, hardware problem, but it's a cultural issue because, uh, uh, because we now are all asking ourselves, what are the problems and challenges for uh, dedicated staff working from home? And I think this kind of crisis is a real health check on the internal culture of an organization. What you're looking for in your staff, I think, are signs of big reserves of morale, team playing, 
inventiveness, public spiritedness or problem sharing, people just reaching out to help each other whenever they see people might have a problem. What you don't want to see are some of the behaviors that frankly organizations do sometimes display in a crisis, which are behaviors of defensiveness, exclusion, indecision, inflexibility, secretiveness, those sort of behaviors. And we've seen our staff drawing on huge reserves of goodwill to help each other deal with the emotional shock. And I, and I think it is an emotional shock that this crisis has uh, involved. We see our staff who are parents trying to work from home while minding children sent home from school. We've got staff trying to support vulnerable relatives. And I, and I just can't speak highly enough of the way our staff uh, have rallied around and, and helped each other. We did try to set the tone as a management team very early on um, when it was a matter of um, uh, looking at uh, the safety of travel. And we um, took a view at that point that um, uh, we would uh, put the safety of staff first uh, in all those travel decisions uh, uh, at that time. More okay, maybe well, I should, yeah. Yeah. go ahead, please. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks, thanks, Martin. Really useful to uh, hear that, especially since, as you say, similar issues will be facing supervisors the world Thank over. So. Uh, yeah. And good to hear your perspective on what went well for you and what in some places went less well and had to be dealt with. Uh, but given the increased risks out there that you talked about earlier, combined with you know, the, the pressures on dealing with a move to home working internally. Uh, how have you gone about reprioritizing what you do to focus on your most important supervisory activities in current conditions? So what are you doing more of? What are you doing less of? And how have those decisions reached and documented by your senior management and your board? Yeah. Yeah. I this is actually a, a topic uh, quite close to my heart, actually, because I, I, I think most regulators have for many years now wrestled with the prioritization of day-to-day -day work, particularly how to balance frontline supervision with work on developing new workflow management systems, new risk management systems, putting new regulatory frameworks in place in the post-crisis environment. And I suspect myself that... Uh, uh, the burden of, of trying to manage change has actually for a number of years been one of the hidden causes of regulatory failure. Um, so when I, any crisis hits, you add another element to that difficult balancing act. Uh, and that element is all the additional enhanced crisis impact focused work that has to be done. And there definitely is a significant additional amount of work to be done. In this case, um, in addition to even that, there was a fourth element, which was your organization has to divert resources to triggering and implementing and planning its own uh, business continuity plan. And that's hugely uh, uh, diverting for, for your resources. In our case, I would say there were a good two weeks when that became our primary, primary focus. And, and, and you also, in some crises, and certainly in this one, you get an additional fifth element of um, trying to help government with their actions, for the, what they're trying to do in relation to the economy, and, and in this case, their, their stay-at-home uh, uh, scheme. So putting all that together, you get uh, the relationship between the urgent and the important becomes really problematic. And unmanaged, you would see huge damage to your work program and particularly to your capital investment program and, and, and so on from, from, uh, from this. Um, you would see capital investment program work being sacrificed. You would see policy development work being sacrificed. You would see 
prudent desk-based supervision not being done if you didn't manage it. So we have to find ways to manage the impact of uh, uh, crisis-driven work uh, uh, as we're now facing. Um, I should say firstly that we maybe got a bit lucky here because, uh, uh, because our, uh, supporting our government in its stay-at-home policy hasn't been as much of a draw on our resources as we had initially feared. The Jersey finance industry has done really well in moving to home working and, and actually home work, working may be something where the finance sector is particularly well suited. You know, clearly construction sector, you can't do home working and, and retail sector, you can't do home working except uh, uh, remote deliveries and so on. Different sectors are different, but the finance sector seems to be actually particularly well placed in many aspects of its activity for, for home working and the Jersey finance sector, with the exception of one or two firms, has, has, has done really well and the continuity has been very impressive. So the, the draw on us to support that work has been, has been uh, uh, limited. The draw on resources from stepped up crisis-focused supervisory work has been and is uh, the key challenge. And in my view, the key to sustaining this is to develop a quickly a standardized tool to support the enhanced monitoring that you have to do. And if you can get some standardized enhanced reporting templates in place, that gives your supervisors a framework for engagement. And it also allows you to have discussions internally so as to focus as narrowly as you can, uh, your, on, uh, allowing for your risk appetite on what it is that uh, concerns you. Because it's very easy uh, for a regulator to start worrying about everything. And frankly, the definition of a panic in, 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 uh, in a regulator in this situation is to start monitoring, enhanced monitoring of everything. And that is not the way I think regulators should respond. So we have tried to focus as narrowly and as purposefully as we can um, so that we minimize what has to be sacrificed in terms of our other work. In regulatory terms, I guess, this is quite a simple crisis, even though in, in human terms, it's an extraordinarily uh, uh, hurtful and, and distressing crisis. So we should be able to identify clear areas of focus for ourselves. And I would just say that's for, it varies from country to country, but generically market liquidity and rising bad desks, debts, I would say, are the two, two key focuses that will be common for most regulators. And we should, on that basis, be able to design a regime which allows a significant portion of our pre-planned day-to-day work to continue. In the JFSC, we're in the middle of that process right now. We've bedded down our out-of-office working arrangements and we're now designing our additional monitoring uh, framework. And once we have that built, which will be done in, in just a few days, then we get to restart a stripped back version of our capital investment and process development projects. Uh, perhaps they'll be a little slower than they would have been before. I suspect they will, but we will still be on course. And that's very important, I think, for maintaining confidence and, uh, and, and continuity for everyone. Some of, the, some of the things we're doing to achieve that, for example, um, we are currently designing a remote recruitment and onboarding process for new staff. So when we initially went out of the office, you might have assumed that recruitment has to all stop until we all get back in the office. Well, it doesn't. We can keep that going. Um, maybe as interesting for a lot of regulators is that we are currently uh, designing a new procedure to do inspections remotely. Uh, uh, which some might have thought that was uh, counterintuitive, but I think actually there's a lot we can do there uh, as well. 
We recently held a, a, a board meeting, a perfectly normal board meeting, which dealt with all the topics it would have dealt with before the crisis, with just one exception. Uh, everybody was on a screen and the board on the screen, the boardroom was empty. Nobody was there. So as much as possible, we are continuing to work to our normal targets. As, as I mentioned earlier about the public health ed exit strategies, I think as those strategies become clear, I suspect that we will have to recalibrate our focus uh, to see which aspects of the financial system are most strained. And we'll pivot our enhanced monitoring roles in those directions. So you have to remain flexible, I think, in how you design, focus, refocus, check again and again that you're looking at the right thing. So for now, it's a little early to say where that focus should be uh, or is likely to be at the end of May or the beginning of June. That's, that feels almost like a lifetime away at this stage. Uh, but as the effects of the crisis compound, I do expect to see more, not less, crisis-driven additional supervisory work to be done. And that's where I think good regulatory management judgment is, is, is going to come in. Uh, in terms of high-level decision-making, how do we do it? Um, it continues with that. I think a key part of our approach has been trying to maintain as much normality as possible in the way that decisions are being taken and keep an eye on our own patterns of behavior in that, in that regard. We have a long-established approach of frontline supervisors having a significant amount of trust from our organization to make judgments in relation to their supervised entities obviously with an escalation option, which they trigger when the most difficult judgments uh, have to be made. Um, to give you another example, our, our senior management team would have initiated that bank, uh, senior management supervision team, I should say, would have initiated that uh, stress test uh, in, the, in the normal way. What has come up to the executive board uh, and to me have been decisions which involve change of approach uh, to respond to unexpected events. Um, the actual triggering of our BCP plans and uh, our engagement with the government, which obviously has no, uh, no, no playbook for it. It's something we just have to work out as we, as we go along. I think one of the mistakes regulators can make in a crisis is excessive centralization. A crisis management team can naturally emerge and then everyone very quickly starts to defer to them and this can create a bit of paralysis in the rest of the organization and that's not good. You have to mobilize all the wisdom and the ingenuity across the whole organization uh, to deal with these kind of situations and you, you don't achieve that by centralizing your, your, your decision making uh, in that way. Far better, I think, uh, to put catch-ups in the diary every day no other purpose than for senior management to tell each other what they are doing. Uh, and this is a hugely powerful but very simple technique. It circulates novel information and it builds senior team bonds. And if the senior team is doing it, other teams will then do it as well. And suddenly the velocity and volume of the circulation of critical information in the organization just goes very quickly up. I think of it as a bit like the arteries in your body expanding to facilitate increased blood flow. It's very simple. It's very effective in, in, in an organization managing its way through a crisis in a constructive way. And when you have a very broad based, I should say this as well, if, when you have a very broad based non-executive board, as we have with a significant number of people active in the city of London and, and so on, who are on our non-executive board, they are a very useful resource as well. Uh, they act as a challenge form for your decisions, but also as a source of intelligence as to what's going on uh, elsewhere. So I think it's really very effective to bring them into the loop as well. Thanks for that, Martin. That's a, that's a fascinating insight on how you've prioritised your supervisory actions. 
Let's just focus for a moment on the policy and supervision decisions you've taken uh, to address the impact of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, various supervisors around the world have wrestled with forbearance, relaxing reporting requirements, uh, requiring financial services firms not to pay dividends and the like. So which policy and supervision decisions have you taken in response to the crisis? Well, obviously this is very dynamic and active, but I would say uh, on some things, our attitude is uh, uh, there's no forbearance and, and we should be clear on those in the first instance. And uh, we've been very clear uh, with our industry uh, that protection of client assets, professional indemnity insurance, um, quality of compliance with AML requirements, reporting to us on liquidity and giving us that information, there just is no forbearance on those sort of key key uh, parameters, I think, of, of behaviours, and I industry have been very good at that. Uh, on the other hand, deadlines for responding to consultations on policy matters, deadlines for regular uh, regulatory data reporting, uh, and there's a range of those kind of deadlines which might be considered as business as usual deadlines, are ones which are definitely up for review and extension, and we provide a significant number of extensions across the board on those and publicized uh, uh, those. In addition, we've altered our, uh, our governance requirements uh, so as to accommodate the fact that look, just in, in this environment, just sometimes key individuals are just not available, and, uh, and they should be, but they're not, and, and we have to be, uh, give a little bit of latitude in, in, in that regard. We've issued guidance on the, uh, the regulatory and compliance aspects of business continuity planning earlier on as, as our regulated firms were building their business continuity planning for this. And we've also guided industry on some tricky uh, issues like physical signatures where some of them were having uh, uh, problems. We're currently considering what other areas we want to provide additional guidance on. And actually one of the options we're thinking about uh, is a role for online webinars. Uh, because sometimes it's just about firms getting clarity on, on, on how the rules exist in this situation and they don't actually need anything more than that but they just haven't had a chance to think through and talk through with their regulator or with their advisors uh, how those, those rules apply in this situation and we can help them in that. One area uh, I should mention is we are issuing warnings uh, on the types of fraud and cyber risk we're seeing. And we're very conscious that there is an unfortunate reality here. Criminals will try to take advantage. And uh, the pattern here is, uh, over the last uh, few days and last couple of weeks has been very clear. We've actually even streamlined our own internal process for vetting those warnings and getting up onto our website faster so that we can be as helpful as we, we can uh, to industry. You, you mentioned dividends. I think when it comes to dividends, this is something that, uh, and not only are regulators looking at, but the banks are looking at them. We see even some asset managers looking at this question of, of, of dividends. It, it, um, we have not yet imposed any constraints. Most of our banks uh, are subsidiaries or branches of larger financial groups. And we will take into account the group situation. We will examine this very carefully. But the way our industry is structured, it's something we have examined on a case-by-case on -case basis. And I think that's our way forward here rather than a general rule. And one of the things I think which is probably worth mentioning here uh, that we have done in terms of enhancing our, our discussions with industry is by putting our hands up uh, to uh, uh, help government 
with its stay at home, at home scheme, we've actually placed ourselves within the process between government and the industry as a facilitator of the communications on how that business continuity planning and stay, staying at home uh, a scheme is, is working. And as I said, most of the financial sector in Jersey is actually doing really well. We've had a couple of in, uh, entities that have had problems, but by acting as an informed facilitator in that process between firms and government, we can help to oil the wheels of just of crisis management in general in the, in this, at this point in time. Okay, thanks a lot for that, Martin. Maybe a good moment now to take uh, one of the questions uh, from a participant, and indeed I think this question probably breaks the record because I received it uh, no more than two minutes after it started, so uh, it, it certainly deserves to be asked first. And it, and it relates back, I think, to this question of supervisory and regulatory approach. And the question is, what's next in terms of regulation? Are we going to see a slate of guidelines and regulations emanating from the current crisis, as with the previous global financial crisis? Or do you think regulators will take the opportunity to step back uh, and really look at what the financial system needs based on the last two crises, uh, which have been extremely different in nature? Yeah, I think um, this crisis is actually really different in nature from the other, from, from the previous crisis. And it's very different in nature from what we had, in some respects, from what we had planned for. So an awful lot of the measures that we have uh, put in place over the last uh, uh, 10 years have been about dealing with a sudden shock within the financial system itself and a loss of confidence and a, a set of second round effects which, which accelerate and intensify the effects of that initial financial sector shock. Paradoxically, what we've actually had in this situation, leaving aside the, the whole horrible human cost element of this, is a real economy shock which has uh, come into the financial sector. And actually the plumbing of the financial sector has so far worked quite well. It hasn't broken down with a bit of help from central banks. So there are, in that sense, relatively few lessons in terms of the resilience and structure of the financial sector to be, financial sector to be drawn from, the, from, this, from this crisis. It may well be that the, the main consideration that we have to take coming out of this crisis is uh, what impacts uh, the further enhanced government measures in, and, and, and central banking measures in relation to putting liquidity into the system have for the financial sector. So it's almost a reverse of our prior way of thinking about it. Some might argue that we we, we had scope to think about that already because the sus sustained monetary policy position that we've been in now for a number of years has had an impact on asset prices for, 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 for many years and therefore has a, had an impact on the risks that regulators have to deal with. But I think that's, that's a debate for a bit down the road and is somewhat related to the point I made earlier, which was that uh, we really aren't clear on, on wh how this crisis is going to unwind. And it is at that point that the stresses on the financial system will become uh, strongest. And if there are some structural flaws uh, that come out of that, then regulators have to be willing to respond to that. But at this point in time, it's more about supervision than about regulation, I think. Good supervision, contact with your entities, understanding where they are, guiding them, talking to them uh, about their own risk management and how they're managing their balance sheet exposures. That's what I see here. Um, and I guess there may well be further talk about um, 
countercyclical measures. And then we see the countercyclical capital buffers in many countries uh, being being uh, used at this point to give further freedom to banks to to lend. I think you can argue uh, around. Um, the capacity of the regulatory system to do other things which are counter-cyclical and, and we should have a discussion around that. And I suspect myself that that will throw up some questions around the global governance of uh, macroprudential uh, uh, regulation and, and financial stability. One of the things you can say, I think, coming out of the last crisis is that we did a huge amount, but perhaps we left the global governance of financial uh, stability uh, a little bit weak. And I suspect that discussion may happen because coordinated countercyclical policies are important here if we're not just going to leave everything to, go to central banks in terms of uh, improving liquidity. Right. Well, thanks for that. Thanks for that, Martin. There's a series of questions coming in uh, which relate to the comments you made about uh, the Jersey Financial Services Commission uh, moving to home working and the various implications of that. Let me just ask some of those questions and see if I can link them together slightly uh, with apologies to the people who asked them for no doubt not doing this as well as you might want. But first of all, you know, does the Jersey Financial Services Commission have any kind of timescale expectation for how long the Jersey lockdown might last? Uh, second, uh, have you made or could you comment further? I think you suggested you had made, but could you comment a bit more on what accommodation you've made for people working from home who are parents of small children or caring for the elderly uh, and how that operates during a crisis and how they can either maintain their productivity or somebody can understand the reasons why they can't. Um, and then in terms of the firms at the other end of this, um, now, what sort of guidance have you given them on some of the things which used to be done face-to-face -face and can no longer be done face-to-face, -face, like the know your customer and identity checks uh, for anti-money laundering purposes? You know, what can the supervisors do to help there? Um, and probably also just related a little bit to this, um, you know, how can you, how can you substitute for the types of detailed file reviews, which you may have done in the past as part of your on-site supervision. So four, I think, broadly related questions there, all coming back to the question of how the move to home working has affected you and the firms you supervise. So let, let, let me um, take those uh, uh, in sequence uh, as, you, as you asked them. Um, when we went out of the office, we described, and indeed in terms of our planning for that, we decided to plan for that as, on, as indefinite. We decided not to put any timeline on it. And so we have set up our arrangements so that we can uh, keep doing this for as long as we need to keep, do it, keep doing it. Um, obviously, we'd all love this to end sooner rather than later, but we know that governments are, are actively monitoring, debating and discussing which where and the curve and so on, you should you you can take your foot off the pedal, and there are different views in different places on that. So the only prudent um, approach for us to take, and the the prudent approach that we are recommending to our industry, is that you say that we are going to set up our arrangements sufficiently robustly that we can do this indefinitely. Um, doesn't mean you expect it to be indefinite, but it just means you don't know when it's going to end, and we have to be honest about what we don't know. Um, 
So the question about parents and, and uh, those with vulnerable uh, uh, relatives and, and so on, it, it's one really close to our heart as an organization. One of the first things our staff did uh, when this happened, once we got our remote working up, uh, was to set up a, a, a channel for, for uh, parents to, to chat to each other about the problems they were facing. And those were really great conversations and they really do help just to share your problems with other people because some people have children who are in a well-established routine. Children are actually very adaptable, but, but if they don't understand what's going on, you've got to talk through it and share experiences with other people and that helps. Going along with that, uh, as an employer, there are a lot of very simple messages that we sent out uh, to people uh, along the lines of, look, if you tell us you are, it is easier for you to do your work in the evening rather than to do it during the daytime as somebody else, so you're around in the morning, but you've got to be with the children in the afternoon and you'll pick it up in the evening, that's okay. Uh, as an organization, we fully understand the challenges of, of parents uh, uh, in, in, in this situation. And, and, and some of our, our staff, frankly, have more difficult challenges. They have actually been forced away from, from their work to help others. And, uh, and I think as a public service organization trying to set the tone for the whole island in terms of how we manage this and how we pull together, the right thing for us to do uh, is, is to say to people, uh, that's okay, we understand. And we've taken that kind of, of approach. There's a, a, the closer you stay to your staff, uh, I had another discussion yesterday with my executive board to ask them all the question, how sure are you that people are staying in touch with everyone and that there isn't anyone getting left out here of the internal virtual conversations which have now become the backbone of our organization. And they were all uh, very comfortable that we have done a huge amount to make sure everybody is getting spoken to and talking to and everybody gets a chance to put their, their top and take me in and share their ideas as to how we manage this. It is surprisingly how, uh, how effective people can be if they, if they share tips, hints and, and feelings and emotions around this. Um, and and uh, turning maybe to the, to the question I thought might interest some people around the idea of remote inspections. Um, here's the thing, look, uh, everyone can talk about a, a sort of dawn raid type inspection, thing like that, where you just go in and, and sort of uh, crash in through the doors or whatever. And, uh, but the vast majority of inspections that financial regulators do are of very different order. What we generally tend to do is go into a regulated entity, we get ourselves a room in there and we get them to bring files to us and we are minutes of meet of committees and so on and we, we get key people to come and we, we interview them and that's how an inspection uh, tends to work. Um, so the question we've asked ourselves, well, why can't that just be a virtual room? Why does that room have to actually be on site? And of course, the only constraint you really have in that context is well, what's the filing system of the regulated entity? To what extent can they get you soft copies of a lot of the key documentation that you want to see? And some organizations have a problem with that, um, but a lot of organizations don't. And in the past, we may not have taken advantage of those possibilities. And this is the occasion, I think, to, to, to do so. I think that's all the questions you asked me, Clive. <clears throat> Um, there was one I think you didn't touch on, but let me let, let me ask on? it in another slightly broader context. In terms of what are you seeing uh, by way of what your supervised firms are doing in response to the crisis? And there have been a number of questions about that. One was the one which um, 
I think you might want to have an opportunity to touch on, which is what should they be doing in terms of the know your customer and ID type requirements ah, yes. for yes. Uh, anti-money laundering, but also some questions about have you seen firms activating their own business continuity plans in the crisis and did that go well or not? Have you seen firms suffering from perhaps entering into outsourcing agreements, uh, particularly with uh, firms outside Jersey that have, that have since gone a bit wrong, question mark. Yeah. Um, and perhaps more generally, you know, what has this crisis told you about the standards of firms' own risk management in terms of being able to assess for themselves uh, the sort of impact which the crisis might have both now and further down the road on their balance sheets, capital, solvency, liquidity, and so on? I think actually firms have done, uh, as I mentioned earlier, incredibly well in terms of uh, uh, triggering their own business continuity plans. And a bit like us, I'm, I'm quite sure that many of them did not have business continuity plans for this type of scenario in place. But um, I think we've all got, let's be honest about it, a little bit lucky because uh, on the one hand, we've had business continuity plans for a different type of scenario. But on another hand, quite unrelated to that, we've um, increasingly come under uh, face demands for home working options from, from numbers of our staff. So a lot of organizations in the financial sector, in order to be attractive employers, have actually worked on home working options, which had nothing to do with financial planning. But they have been able to put the two together in this crisis and actually create a quite short notice, an effective uh, business continuity plan suitable uh, to, this, to this event. Um, so that has worked um, far better than I had uh, feared. And I, I'm just been genuinely very surprised at, at uh, how good the industry have, doing, uh, have been at doing this. Some of the, some sectors of the industry were 100% were, uh, out of the office before we were. And uh, I was very impressed with that. Um, I, in relation to uh, the AML question you, you raised about, about onboarding, it is a critical standard we have said to industry, you cannot dilute your standards because this is a situation in which some people will take advantage. Um, however, uh, we have long said to our industry that you really need to read the advice that we have uh, issued in great care and read the FATF guidance on, on this. And you will find that there are options available to you that you have not necessarily taken up. Now, some of our industry have long known this and taken advantage of it and, 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 uh, uh, for, for, for some time. Some we were actually in discussions with before this uh, crisis rose as to what their options were. And um, we do a plan, I think, on doing more communication with industry over the next couple of weeks around what their options are. There is a rather simplistic view that I've seen in some other jurisdictions where people are saying, give us relief from the, from the rules uh, in this period. But in fact, you don't need relief. You need to, to uh, apply yourself cleverly and, and take full advantage of what the guidance uh, allows you. Because FATF has been conscious for some time of the, uh, the pressure of innovation and remote onboarding and so on, and has already put guidance in place, if taken full advantage of, that allows people to set up processes that can work. 
I've no doubt there's a transition issue for our firms. It can be difficult to plan and organize. And some of the third parties that are uh, selling services to help them with that will themselves be incredibly busy at the moment. So um, that, that will be an issue for some. But I would say rather than dilute standards, it may be necessary for them to do as we have done, which is just to slow the onboarding uh, uh, a bit. Uh, and those who are best prepared will be best able to take advantage of the of the business opportunities. Outsourcing has been an issue for some firms, definitely. Um, outsourcing to certain countries where uh, the response to the virus has created local problems has been a particular issue. And we have been in contact with some of our regulated entities to make sure that they are managing those outsourcing relationships very closely. Um, Speaking globally, there it is definitely the case that looking at outsourcing as a global challenge, that there are patterns in some entities of not having all the legal powers in their contractual relationships for outsourcing that they would wish to have to be able to deal with quality assurance issues in this kind of situation. But actually, where uh, an outsourcing dysfunction is appearing in this context, it's, it's actually quite evident and quite fundamental rather than marginal. So most firms that are suffering from outsourcing problems, I'm, I find they've been on top of it. They've realized the problem relatively early because it's been quite graphic and they've, been, they've managed it down over, over the period of, of time. And, and sometimes that does involve a change in, in productivity. But... Um, what has actually surprised me, we run a, a company's registry as well as running a, a registry, out, a, a regulator out of the JFSC. And both in terms of our applications for authorization as a regulator and in terms of our company registration applications, our volumes are actually up. They're not down. Uh, and if business actually seems to be to be to be uh, intensifying, if anything, rather than the opposite. And, and uh, from our discussions generally with firms, they're doing that within the framework that we're imposing on them. Okay, thanks for that, Martin. And a couple of questions coming back to uh, what you were saying earlier about uh, maintaining security uh, in your move to home working. Uh, one question was, I think, questioning how sure can you be about the security and confidentiality and privacy of anything, be it uh, written or spoken, uh, that's, that's, that's communicated uh, to staff at home and discussed between them on video calls or whatever. Uh, and the second question, and the question that may know a bit of inside information on this, which I'm not privy to, uh, but somebody asking how dependent you and your supervised firms are on the, uh, the Jersey uh, network for internet and telecommunications. How good is your fiber network and how robust is it? Um, just on, on your first point, um, I, I think uh, we have um, benefited from the fact that we uh, had done some work in advance of this on how to integrate third-party uh, uh, um, uh, video conferencing programs into our system in a secure way. So what we did, we were faced with the temptation uh, when we started our business continuity planning to try to plug in some of these video conferencing programs without actually connecting them uh, fully up to our system. We resisted that and we only uh, um, uh, connected them in as we uh, could ensure the security of, of, of those connections. So we have a standard in relation to the security of how we deal with information and that includes uh, 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 verbal conversations. 
uh, we've maintained that standard and uh, it's one that was set well before this crisis and hasn't been diluted at all. I acknowledge that there are ways to do video conferencing and remote working and so on, which do involve dilution of, of security. We just haven't gone down that route. And once or twice, my IT people might have cursed me uh, in terms of the work we were requiring them to do at very short notice, but they did it to a, to a brilliant standard and, and, and we were able to, to get those facilities up and running. So I, I would say to any regulator with this issue, to challenge your IT people, if you haven't got the expertise in-house and some very small regulators wouldn't, sort of go to government or go to a third party or police or somebody who has that uh, level of, of uh, knowledge and get a bit of help to make sure that you have the encryption and the secure lines and so on to, 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 do, to do it uh, uh, properly. Actually, in Jersey, in terms of network, we are blessed uh, by the quality of our, of our, 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 uh, our internet network. It's a very high-speed network, and it has proven extremely reliable. We ourselves purchased additional bandwidth at the start of this, and we created a cushion for ourselves um, in order to ensure that no matter how uh, much our internal volume of traffic went up uh, that we would be uh, we would be safe and we were doing that at, that at the same time like a lot of others as other people were buying additional bandwidth so it, it was a case of getting early if you wanted to get that bandwidth for yourself and thankfully from our point of view we were able to get it excellent well you're still with us martin so that must be a testament <laughs> to uh, the quality of the fiber network um, one final set of questions uh, looking forward uh, asking really how how worried are you and what are you most worried about as the crisis continues and if it continues for longer you know what happens if the economic situation does worsen further which risks might increase further and you know are there any pressures building up in terms of how long your staff can productively work from home yeah, I, I, this is, we've, it won't surprise you to, to, to hear that we have discussed this. And, and I think uh, I can say with some confidence, um, I, th I think our staff can actually work from home for, for quite a long time. Um, and I think that's because, this comes back to the culture issue, that's because we're talking about the problems of working from home. We're talking among ourselves about it. And we're admitting the, the issues. And I, I think humans can become very resilient when they when they support each other so you know when you're under stress i can back you up and help you and later when i'm under stress and you're okay uh, you can back me up and so that actually is not my my key worry i think um uh, i think um my worries are are are, are elsewhere um We've all, I guess, become sort of amateur epidemiologists in the in the context of watching the the terrible unfolding of these uh, these events. So, like many others, I worry about things like um, uh, virus mutations that which might bypass the accumulating immunity, or I worry about uh, potential for failed vaccines or tests that don't work, for example. Uh, and all those are just scenarios which all amount to really the same thing. I worry about the exit strategy. Uh, and I worry about the exit strategy having to be abandoned and go back to the start again. And, and that's a, a big worry in terms of the economy and in terms of the finance sector. So I worry more particularly about um, the point where if it's reached when public finances just can't bear anymore the burden of the programs that have been put in place. I worry about the plain and simple scenario in which the capital of our financial institutions gets eaten through uh, by, by bad debts. Now, thankfully, neither of those situations is close 
So uh, uh, um, we're, we're still doing okay, but this is a bit like a, a, a slow bicycle race, I think. We, we've got to stay up on that bike for as long as possible uh, and, and, and let the economy operate as slowly as, 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 as we can for, uh, until our public health advisors tell us it's okay. And um, so that, that is, is definitely uh, the nature of my concerns. In the longer term, uh, and this relates to one of the questions that was mentioned earlier. I think I worry about the political economic implications of this crisis. I do. I hear pundits who say that it will cause a further retreat within borders. Uh, I hope that's not true. But I do also recognize that we cannot, as a society, uh, have the experience of one in a hundred year events every 10 or 12 years and keep on using central bank liquidity to, to, to uh, ease the, the burden of those crises without uh, having good ways to unwind that liquidity uh, and, and get, get back to a more uh, normal operating uh, uh, situation. So there are some worries there, but I, I think at this point they are overwhelmed by the positive messages of how well the financial system is, is doing. Okay, well, Thank you for that, uh, Martin. And I think uh, that's the point at which we must draw to a close. Our, our hour is being used up rapidly, even as uh, more questions come in. And I'm sorry we couldn't answer all of them. Uh, I think this has been, and I hope you agree, an important and stimulating conversation. So first of all, a tremendous thank you to you, Martin, uh, for all that you've contributed. And a thank you also to our participants, both for joining us and for asking so many questions. As I say, I'm sorry we haven't been able to answer all of them. Uh, so we hope this has been helpful. Uh, we are, in a sense, um, all in this together. Um, and it's a time of uncertainty, and I'm sure there's a lot we can all learn from each other. Uh, let me just read out one uh, input which I've received from a participant, which isn't a question, but I hope sums up uh, the feelings of everyone on this call, which is to say, I just want to thank Martin for being so honest and professional in sharing with us not only his professional advice, uh, but also his very human, really touching advice as a parent uh, and a family man. Uh, thank you, Martin. Uh, so I think that sums it up really on behalf of all of us, and thank you for the participant who sent that in. I should perhaps just that. mention, yeah, I should perhaps just mention that Toronto Centre is publishing today and should be posting on its website uh, a couple of Toronto Centre notes of particular relevance to today's session. Uh, one is on 10 issues for supervisors to consider in a crisis, and the second is on business continuity planning for supervisory authorities. Uh, so do please, if you're interested, take the trouble to look at those and read them. Uh, they're both quite short and to the point. Uh, do please stay tuned for our upcoming events. You can find details of all of those on the Toronto Centre website. And so thank you, Martin, and all of the participants for your participation today. And do please stay safe and healthy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.